Welcome to the City Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. As a community of faith, we are passionate about helping people find and follow Jesus. Well, good morning, and again, welcome to City Baptist Church. I'm glad that you're here today. I'm excited to have our second in-person service, and it's great to have a whole different group of people here and uh, different faces. So thanks for joining with us today. Thanks for joining online. I hope that you'll take your Bibles with me today, and let's go to the book of Acts, chapter number 15, as we continue our series, Church on the Move, today. I'm very excited to share with you uh, the message that I have for you today. It's an important message for all of us, and I hope that it'll be uh, challenging to you as well. You know, when we come to church, we come to be encouraged a little bit, but we also come to be challenged, because if if we don't uh, hear some challenge sometimes in our flesh, we never challenge ourselves, do we? And so it's good to uh, hear from the Word of God, and that's what we're going to do today. And so we're going to be in Acts chapter number 15, and uh, I'm excited and thankful for the worship time today, for the encouragement uh, that God is all you need today. And uh, I don't know about you, but I needed some God this week, and I hope that you did too, and I hope that you turned to Him. It's one thing to say it, it's another thing to actually rely on Him. And we need God today in these times. And today's message, I think, goes right along with some of the things and themes that we've been uh, hearing, and as well, what I feel is a good focus for us as a church family uh, as we move forward into these uh, interesting times that we find ourselves in. But we're in Acts chapter number 15, and today uh, we're going to uh, again come across maybe a little bit of an interesting situation in the early church as the gospel is going forth. But before we get right into the message, um, I wonder if how many of you uh, remember maybe a time as a kid uh, where you got into a fight and you thought you were doing the right thing. You thought that you were standing up for your honor or you were standing up for somebody else. Uh, but then uh, later on, it was re- revealed to you, probably by your parents, that that was the wrong thing to do. Anybody? I know that's for me, for sure. Uh, as a kid, I remember one time I got in a fight. And, and here's the thing about fights. Uh, when you're a kid and you're a boy, you know, sometimes you have these feelings like, I got to, you know, be this macho man and all of this. And, and uh, I, I remember as a kid, one of the first fights I ever got into, and I thought I was doing the right thing because somebody had called me a name, right? Man, somebody called me a name in Sunday school. And so I thought that the best way to deal with it was in the church parking lot after the Sunday school lesson, right? And we're going to go out there and we're going to, we're going to deal with this thing. Well, guess what I learned from my parents? That's not appropriate. (laughs) That's not okay. Uh, You know, and, and one thing I did learn though, is that that's not an appropriate time. But what I did learn is that sometimes there was an appropriate time for me to stand up. I remember one time in particular, we were at the park uh, me and my younger sister, and I was probably like eight years old or so, and my sister was six, I think, and some, some three boys that were there started throwing rocks at my sister and, and yelling at her, and uh, I, I'm sure she deserved it. I'm sure she did something. <laughs> I'm sure she was mouthing off or something. Uh, I don't know, but, uh, uh, and so I thought, well, I got to defend my sister's honor, right? And I went, I ran over there, and I got in a little fight with these three guys, and, and, uh, and they took off running, and I thought, man, I got it all figured out. And that's when my brother, I saw my brother running up behind me, my 15-year-old, 14-year-old brother, and I realized, okay, it wasn't me. Uh, <laughs> but, um, and, 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 and when I heard that, and, and when I got home, my dad was like, man, you did the right thing, you know, you stood up for your sister and all of that, and normally fighting's not okay, but you stood up for your sister. And, and that's what we learned through life, is that there are times in life where you really need to stand up, and we recognize that, but there's also times in life where you need to follow the scriptural principle of forgiveness. There's times in life where you just need to let some things slide, just got to let some things go sometimes. And, uh, 
And, and, and it's hard to know how to manage our reactions sometimes. Even today as an adult, sometimes I struggle with how do I manage my emotions? What, what is my response uh, supposed to be? Because all of us within us, deep down, even if you would never admit this to me, we all have that bit of a hero complex inside where we're like, I'm going to save the day, right? I'm going to be the one who's going to fix everything. I'm going to be the one who's going to be this hero. And we have these great imaginations, you know, of how things go out. But I tell you what, often when I follow those imaginations of how I thought things should go, it often ends up in just damaging myself, <laughs> or maybe damaging a relationship, or damaging my testimony, my personal testimony uh, for the Lord. And in life, it can get messy. And sometimes we really, well, not sometimes, always, we need the reliance of the Holy Spirit to manage our emotions and to manage how we respond and the kind of things that we stand up to. But when it comes to our faith, and so I want us to get today, when it comes to our faith, when it comes to the Word of God, when it comes to truths that we uh, see throughout Scripture, we know for sure that there are some things that we must stand up for. I mean, in our society today, that's a perfect example of it, right? We know that as Christians, we should stand up against racism, right? We know that. I mean, that's all over the news today. We know that. But there's also some things that's come along with that good stand that maybe we shouldn't be standing up for. And I think you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. As Christians, we need to choose and pick what we're going to stand strong for based off of the Word of God. And we've got to stand up for some things. And that's what we're going to see in our passage today, is we're going to see uh, some of the disciples stand up for the truth of the Word of God. And I want to encourage you with this thought as we get started today. When it comes to the truth of the Word of God, you should always stand up for what it says. You should always stand up for the truth. You should always be willing to defend what God is trying to show us. It's interesting. Uh, Jesus in his ministry, five different times that we have recorded for us, he talked about the importance of watching out for false teachers. He talked about watching out for false doctrine that may come in and how you need to stand up against that. Uh, Paul talked about it. Peter talked about it. Uh, John gave us instructions as to how we could determine if somebody is a false prophet and how to stay away uh, from false teachings. And, and all throughout Acts already, what we've seen, of course, is we've seen uh, the Word of God being challenged time and time again. We've seen false teachers come. We've seen false thoughts that have come in. And there really are attacks against the Word of God. And that's what we're going to see in Acts 15, where Satan again, and you're like, man, this guy is relentless. Yes, he is relentless. When was the last time Satan left you alone for an extended period of time, right? He doesn't. Again, we see another attack coming to the church. And again, remember, the gospel is going forth. Good things are happening, and Satan is trying to deter it. And this time, what he does is he brings it from within the believers, within the believers, and he tries to bring some division between the church body. He tries to bring some contention. Now, if you think back to last week, you remember we left off in Acts chapter 14, verse number 27. Paul and Barnabas had come back from that first missionary journey, and I want to read verse 27 to you. It says that when they got back to Antioch of Syria, they rehearsed all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Remember that? And everyone was excited, and they celebrated, and, and they had joy over what God had done in the Gentile world. And, and to us, when we read it, we're like, great, the door is open, and great things are going to happen. But to the Jewish believers. I want you to remember, there, there's these two groups still at this point. There was still the Jewish believers, and then there were these Gentile believers that were starting to grow at a, at a rapid pace. While the door was then swung and kicked open, if you want to call it that, kicked open to the Gentiles, what was happening within the Jewish believers was that they were concerned about what the way forward was going to look like then. Okay, now that all, that's great. We're glad all these Gentiles are getting saved. Well, what is that going to look like for the regular day-to-day -day life. What's it going to look like 
Uh, what's our faith going to look like? And so there's some tension that rises. And from that tension, what we see as we begin chapter 15 is that the church in Jerusalem, some leaders from Jerusalem made the trip up to Antioch of Syria and they came to teach a specific inter- interpretation of the scripture to the Gentiles. Look at verse number one with me. We're going to cover a few verses today, so you got to stay with me. And uh, look at verse number one. It says, and certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren. Well, that's the brethren in Antioch. So they came and they taught the brethren, and here's what they said. Except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. Now think about that for a minute. Unless you are circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved is what they came and what they taught. Now, to the people in Antioch, think about it for a moment. How great would it have been to have some people from Jerusalem come to your church? I mean, that would have been great, right? I mean, Jerusalem's where it all started. This is, I mean, this is where everything happened. And so, of course, they would have come and they would have welcomed them. Oh, you're from Jerusalem. You're from the church in Jerusalem. James is your pastor. Great. Why don't you come and teach us? And then they get up and they begin to teach this very discouraging message. I'm sure the people there would have been like, awesome. Man, they're going to give us some new truth. You know, came from Jerusalem, just like Paul and Barnabas came and taught us all these things. Teach us some new encouraging truth. And then they teach them this truth where they say that unless you've been circumcised, unless you add to your faith, Faith in Christ, this physical Jewish uh, right, therefore you are not saved at all. Now, before we get super critical of the Jewish believers, we want to give them a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. It's always good to give somebody the benefit of the doubt, okay? Uh, We have to understand their mindset. Just like in any disagreement, you need to understand the mindset of the other person. So the mindset of the Jewish believers in that day was, was that um, that, that first of all, they understood that at the beginning, all believers were Jews, right? When, when the gospels first started going out, it was Jewish believers. Day of Pentecost, they were all Jewish believers that got saved at the very beginning. And so what they concluded then is that Christianity was not intended to bypass Judaism, but instead what they thought it was to build upon it. So they said, okay, we have this Jewish faith that we've been following for generations. Jesus, the Messiah who came down to earth, he then builds upon that. Does that make sense? And that's what they believe. They believe that, okay, he did not come to just jump right over Judaism. He came to build off of it. And so they saw Jesus as the final step in the long process. And so here's what their fear was. Their fear was is that because now Gentiles are coming to faith, so many Gentiles are coming to faith, they're coming from a pagan background, not a Jewish background. And so we're going to have some just, we're going to have some issues you know, they, they didn't have a problem with, with eating uh, certain types of things. They didn't have a problem with uh, eating meat that had been uh, part of, of temple worship. They didn't have a, they have a problem with any of those things. And so they're like trying to, they're, they're trying to balance. You understand? They're trying to balance. Okay, this is what I've known my whole life. This is what I've been taught. Now I know the Messiah has come. That's great. But now what about all these other people? And so they believe that in order for the strength of the, of the faith to move forward, these Gentiles then needed to essentially become Jews and become a part of the Jewish faith if everything was going to stay as they thought it should stay, okay? And so that was the heart behind their approach. And I got to tell you, their heart was pure in this. You realize that? Their heart was pure in it, but their motivation was misguided. (laughs) Their heart was pure, but they were misguided because they didn't truly understand the implications of God's grace to all people through salvation. They didn't really understand it. Thankfully, Paul and Barnabas did understand it. (laughs) And so when these guys came in and they began to teach this, Paul and Barnabas were like, wait a second, (laughs) wait a second. So now we get to verse number two. 
and through, uh, th- down to uh, through three, sorry. It says, and where, uh, when therefore Paul and Barnabas had no, what's that word there? Say it with me, small. <laughs> so if it's not small, it's what? Big. <laughs> so they said there was no small dissension and disputation with them. That would have been some debate, don't you think? Paul and Barnabas, who had literally suffered the, the, uh, the attacks and the persecution of the flesh. Paul had been stoned for the grace of God, and someone is trying to tell him, no, 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 it's not grace, it's also the Jewish faith. You imagine how much Paul, he was, he was a bit of a fiery guy. And he would have come, I mean, he would have come right out and said, no. That's why it says there was no small dissension and no small disputation. And so the truth that Paul had heard from God himself about grace and salvation to all, I mean, he, he was not going to waver at all. So he began to confront these guys, and it became such a debate that the church then sent them. Look what happens. There was no small dissension so that they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the... Now, we know geographically, you understand how that works, right? It's actually south geographically, but you always go up to Jerusalem anyway, um, just remember that. Go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. They say, you guys need to go to Jerusalem, and we're going to deal with it. And being brought on their way by the church, the church funded their trip. The church sent them on their way. They passed through Phoenix and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy unto all the brethren. To me, it's ironic that as they're on their way to discuss this with the Jewish believers, they told others about the Gentiles getting saved, and they're like, this is so great. And then these other Jewish guys are like, no, 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 I don't know if they're really saved. <laughs> That's why we're on this trip. Okay. And such a dichotomy there going there. All right, verse, verse four. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them. That would have been a great story. That would have been a great time to hear them declare what God had done. But there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees. Now, wait a second here, the Pharisees. Now, think about that for a minute. I'm just let you sit on that. There were some of the Pharisees which... Believe. Now that's really awesome right there, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and, no, they added to it, and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So obviously what had happened up in Antioch was not a one-time event. I think you guys understand that. Uh, there were others in Jerusalem, particularly these Pharisees that had been saved. Now, to me, that is a wonderful picture of the grace and the mercy of God, that these hypocritical Pharisees, these Pharisees who, uh, I mean, who, who tried to kill Jesus and succeeded in stirring up the people, that some of them even believed that he was the Messiah, Son of God, and now they are following in his step. They, they are following him. But what they came to say, though, is that not only do they believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but anyone who's going to be saved then must go through that physical rite of circumcision, and they must follow the law of Moses. What they're saying is that those Gentiles must embrace the law in its entirety, all 613 laws. They must embrace that, make it a part of their life, follow the law, and, uh, um, and if they truly believed, then they would have been saved. Now, they were believers, right? They were believers. They believed that Jesus, well, what were they doing? Well, what they were doing is they were adding to salvation by grace through faith. They were adding to it. This, and so this was the big theological discussion that's at hand. Paul and Barnabas, and they said, no, no, it's by grace alone. They're saying it is grace of God plus the law of Judaism in order to be saved. You must do those two things. They are adding to the grace of God. Look what happened in verse number six. And the apostles and the elders came together for to consider of this matter. That's a good thing to do, right? 
whenever there's a theological discussion, by the way, when there's ever any situation between two different groups of people, you need to come together and you need to talk about it. And that's what they do. We're going to come together. This is called uh, the Jerusalem Council is what they call it. And so they come together and they begin to discuss. And here's what I want you to understand. Theologically, theologically, the truth of the gospel was at stake here at Jerusalem. But beyond the theological implications, there were the relational implications as well here. I, I don't want us to miss out on that. Whatever came out of this council here had the opportunity to bring division and to ruin the openness that they had experienced by replacing the gospel with an exclusive gospel only to those who would not only trust Christ, but then do the Jewish law as well. And what I see here is that a split is coming. Do you see that there? This is not a small matter. The, the outcome of this meeting is a big, big deal. Now, fortunately, the Jerusalem Council followed Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad about that? I am. Uh, otherwise, we're about to head into a real terrible story. Uh, but what we see here is them following the Lord, them trusting the Holy Spirit. And in so they give us a basis, they give us an example of how we can build grace into our theology and build grace into our relationships. And that's what the focus is today. The title of my message is Grace Alone. And it applies to so many different aspects. Well, as we get into the story now, I want you to see point number one today. We see how grace is defended. We see how grace is defended. Look at verse number seven. It says, and when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up. I love that. Peter rose up. Much disputing. Uh, I had the opportunity to go to Ottawa a few years ago, and we got to go and sit in part of a uh, question period. You guys ever see that maybe on TV, and it's a time that they have in, in um, the House of Commons, and they just are jumping up, and they're shouting, and it's a time to keep the government under account uh, for what they're doing. And I can imagine that maybe it was like this. person standing up and, and talking, and then somebody says, I, I, I disagree with that, and, and, and arguing back and forth, and they have this big thing. And then Peter stands up. Now, we haven't heard from Peter in a long time. And spoiler alert, this is the last time we see Peter mentioned in the book of Acts. This is the last time that, that we know. Remember, he was still fearful of his life. He had escaped from prison, and then he disappeared for a while. Well, now Peter shows up for this Jerusalem council, and when he begins to speak, people begin to listen. So it says, and he said unto them, men and brethren, ye know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles, by my mouth, he's talking about himself, by my mouth, my, uh, sorry, by my mouth, should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us. Peter stands up and he immediately goes back into his memory banks when God had sent him to Cornelius. You remember that story? And God has sent him, and he had the dream that came down with the sheet that came down and all of those unclean animals in there. And God has said, I want you to rise and eat. What And the story or the, the, the lesson that God was trying to teach him, what only God calls clean is clean. And, uh, and, and he was to go to these Gentiles. And so then he went to Cornelius' house, and he preached the gospel, and they got saved. And then the Holy Spirit fell on them right there in front of Peter. And he saw, and he knew, and he believed, and even reported back that, hey, okay, the gospel, the Holy Spirit is come to the Gentiles. Verse number 9. He says, and put no difference between us and them. The Gentiles and the Jews, he's breaking down barriers that were never intended to be there. And he says, there's no difference between us and them. By the way, this is a great lesson for our, our city and our country and our world today. Wouldn't you agree? We are all one blood before Christ. And he put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, he says, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples 
which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. Man, that's a really powerful statement there. He says, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. And I love that there. We believe it's through the grace that we can be saved even as they. So he accuses these Pharisee leaders. He comes in and he accuses them that they're trying to test God by going against what he had already made plain. Uh, and, and the point that he's trying to get across to them is that the law had never saved anyone. And they truly knew that. They knew they could not be saved by the law. They were saved by the promise of the coming Messiah who would, who would, um, who would make all things clean and usher in the kingdom. He even accuses them of, of the fact that they had failed in that. He says, why would you put a yoke, a burden on them that even you can't keep up uh, yourself? You know, the, the great commandment of loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I mean, no one can actually do that. And he says, you weren't even able to keep it, but then you want to put it on, uh, on these other Gentiles. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. The law is important. The law was important, and it is important because the law, as Paul said, it is the teacher, the schoolmaster that points us to Christ. But the thing is that if you try to turn to the law for salvation or necessary for salvation, that is wrong. There is a place for the law, but it is not to be replaced with the salvation through grace. I think of it this way. You know, nobody ever goes to a mirror and looks in a mirror and discovers that they have food in their teeth. I mean, that's embarrassing, especially if you've been at somebody's house and you're like, man, I probably had this in here for the whole night. You know, that's the worst. <laughs> like, why did you tell me? Uh, but nobody ever goes in there and sees it. Man, I got a piece of lettuce right here. And so what you do is you, what do you do? You take the mirror off the wall, right? And then you try to clean your teeth with the mirror. Nobody does that. I don't think if you do that, you're a very, very strange individual. Here's the point I'm trying to get, Okay. Uh, the law shows us how desperately we need a Savior. That's what the Ten Commandments reveal to us, how desperately we need God. It also shows us that in ourselves as mankind, we cannot live up to the perfection of God. That's the point of the law. But we don't go to the law to fix the problem. What we do is we go to the Savior. We don't go to the law to, to, to fix the issue we look to the Messiah, we look to Jesus Christ as the answer, just like you would then go, I need a toothpick. <laughs> In the same way, we look at the law, reveals to us our sin, okay, I need a Savior. The law cannot fix what it reveals. The law is simply a mirror to show us. And Peter's conclusion here is simple, and it is strong, and it is the right conclusion. He says, you Jewish believers are adding to salvation, which is a term that we call legalism. Now, the term legalism today has been changed a little bit. Sometimes people like to add the word legalism or they say you're a legalist in the Christian world if you have a, maybe a specific standard in some regard. Like you, uh, uh, maybe in your church you have a, a standard of leadership or you have a standard of church membership in order to serve in a certain way in the church. And they're like, legalist. Okay, no. A legalist is someone who adds to salvation by grace alone. That's what it is. It's not about a preference or a or a, an established standard that a church may have, it's adding to the grace of God. And that's what these Pharisees were doing. They're adding adherence to the law. And they said, essentially, these Gentiles are not actually saved until they adhere to the law. Now you say, that's ridiculous. How could they ever say that? Well, guess what? People today still do that. You recognize that? There are false religions all around this world that are doing exactly that. And sometimes people who are uh, have good intentions are doing this same thing. Many people, without even realizing it sometimes, believe in a Jesus plus something else type of gospel. They believe in a Jesus 
plus baptism. You know, I was baptized as a kid, and therefore then I am saved. Some people have Jesus plus uh, uh, Jesus plus their, uh, their upbringing, right? I was raised in church. My mom and daddy were Christians. Therefore, I'm a Christian because I have that background. Plus, you know, Jesus loves me. Some people add Jesus plus church attendance, and so they faithfully go to church every single time it's open. By the way, you should. That's not, that's not a reason for you not to come to church. I don't know, those of you watching, I don't know why you're not here. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. But uh, you, you know what I'm saying, and they add church attendance, and oh, I, I went to church every day, and I've talked to people, I go to church every morning, and, or whatever it may be, and they add that to the gospel, or they add their good works. I ask people all the time, hey, how do you know that you're saved? Well, I, I'm a good person. I try to live a good life. And I try, to, uh, I try to talk to my friends. I try to be kind to my neighbors. And, and I try to never step on insects. And whatever it is, I, I love dogs. And I donate to uh, sh- uh, shelters. And they tell me all of these good things that they do. And they say, that's why I'm saved. I got to tell you today, if you add anything to the gospel, you lose the gospel. If you add anything to the grace of God, it is no longer the grace of God. Here's how gospel math works out. Here's how gospel math works out, okay? Jesus plus nothing equals everything. (laughs) Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That is gospel math. It's not Jesus plus good works, Jesus plus upbringing, Jesus plus being kind, Jesus plus uh, wearing the right clothes or, or whatever it may be. It's Jesus and that's it. And that equals everything. And that is what is so amazing because that is the grace of God. Grace means undeserved favor. The undeserved favor of God is that Jesus would give of himself entirely to you and entirely to me, and and, and through that, I can receive eternal life. I mean, that's just amazing to me. That is the grace of God. Uh, The work of Jesus Christ is sufficient. It is enough, and the, the, the gospel of the exclusivity of Jesus by the grace of his sacrifice will always be disputed by mankind. Do you understand that? It will always be disputed by mankind because our default mode of mindset as a human is works-based righteousness. That's the default that we all just go to. It's the, it's the default switch. It's the reset switch in the human mind that somehow we have to do something to achieve it. But you cannot earn righteousness. It can only be received by faith in Jesus Christ in lo- alone. And we today who have been saved are saved by his absolute pure grace, nothing added to it, no additives at all. Uh, It is simply his grace, his undeserving favor upon us. I love Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 9 that tells us, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, it is not of works, lest any man should boast. And we've broken that verse down and studied it in depth as a church family, but we got to remember it is not of works, it is Christ and Christ alone. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16 says, knowing that a man is not justified. The word justified means, uh, a good way to remember how it, what it means is just as if I'd never sinned. That's what it, what it means. It means you're standing before God and it's like you never sinned. By the way, you can stand before God justified as if you never sinned through Jesus Christ. And so he says, a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we uh, have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Man, if you could get one thing today, recognize that your good works will not save you. 
They will not save you. Maybe some of you are watching today and you've been putting your trust in your works. You've been putting your trust in the things that you have done or the, the money that you have given or the, the, the good things or the life or the, uh, the, the, the fact that you've gone to church your whole life. Listen, it's not about what you've done. It's all about Jesus Christ and you have to recognize that. You have to accept it. That's what his grace is. Salvation by grace alone distinguishes Christianity from every other world religion. Religion is built on human performance. <laughs> Study it out. Every religion is built on human performance, but no one has been saved by human performance or religious observance. God has always desired our faith. The gospel is not do this and earn God's favor. The gospel is Jesus paid it all so you can just trust in him. This is the message that Peter is defending, and it's the message that we must defend in our hearts today. Listen, if you are unsure of it, if you are still trying to live a works-based salvation, if you're still wondering, well, I know God saved me and I, you put my faith, but I'm still like, oh, I still feel like I need to do these things uh, or, or I have to have this kind of acceptance. Listen, Jesus paid it all. Trust in him and that's the security of our salvation. He is the one who's doing the saving, not you. People struggle with their, with their assurance. They're like, I don't know if I'm saved. I, I did this bad thing, and I, man, I had this, this horrible night of just lust and just terrible things, and am I really saved? Listen, if Jesus is the one doing the saving, you know he saved you. Now, you should repent of your sin, and you should get it right, but he's the one who's holding you. Stop trying to hold your salvation yourself because you will fail at it. You cannot try to, you will not hold on to it, and you'll always live in doubt. You'll always live in doubt. Listen, trust Jesus in this way, and Peter is defending it. Look at the way the crowd responds in verse number 12. And all the multitude kept silence. <laughs> Whoa. They were like, <laughs> man, silence, it says. And then they gave audience to Barnabas and Paul. I mean, it's just dead quiet. And they're like, um, Barnabas, Paul, you have anything to say? <laughs> and they gave audience declaring, this is what they did. They declared what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. Not only did the crowd sit in silence to Peter's testimony, but Paul and Barnabas take advantage of the moment. <laughs> and they affirm and they relate what God had been doing during that first missionary journey. And so now we've heard from Peter. We've heard from Paul. We've heard from Barnabas. But I want you to see in the passage, there's one person that we have not heard from yet. Somebody of importance in the church there in Jerusalem. And that is of James. James is the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And he hasn't said a word yet. Well, now we're going to transition into him making a statement, and, and it's going to be really, really great to see. Now, you say, who is James? Well, James, as a reminder, was the half-brother of Jesus. He did not believe in Christ until he had already been dead and resurrected. Imagine his own family rejecting that he was the Messiah up until after that time. Well, he had very quickly moved into uh, the church in Jerusalem, was part of the day of Pentecost, all of that that happened. He was known by a couple of nicknames. Uh, he was called James the Just. Isn't that a great nickname? And uh, a great, they call him James the Just. He was also called Old Camel Knees. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, I know, Camel Knees. That was his other nickname. If it were me, I would pick James the Just, please, you know. You say, why they call him that? Well, they call him that is because uh, actually after he died, uh, I guess when they were prepping him for the burial, they found that he had such calluses on his knees from praying that it looked like an old camel's knees, that they were so callous and hard from the hours that he would spend every day on his knees in prayer. And that's what a great testimony. I guess I'd be okay if you called me camel knees, right? If it was true. <laughs> but that's what he was called. But he was a pillar of the church. He was a moderator of the assembly. And now he is going to uh, step up and begin to speak. Now, now you got to think again. I'm sure that the Pharisee believers who were in the church in Jerusalem, when James stood up to talk, they were like, all right, he's on our side. 
He's going he's gonna to defend the law. Here we go. Defend the law, James. Come on, James, you know. And look what he says in verse 13 through 18. I'm going to read it to you. And after they had held their peace, James answered, uh, answered saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Listen to me. Simeon, he used his Jewish name, Peter's Jewish name. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets as it is written. Now, I just want you to notice, he says, God declared that uh, they, the Gentiles would be visited with the truth. He also then says that it agrees with the words of the prophets. Okay, so the Old Testament prophets. As it is written, verse 16, and now he's beginning a quote. After this, I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord. And all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. James stands out and he points out to them that they are witnessing the salvation of the Gentiles and they should not be surprised of it because God had already foretold it. He quotes there the prophet Amos in Amos chapter number 9 verses 11 through 12 as proof of that. That God had said that uh, the tabernacle of David, only if you saw that there would be built up again. And what that signified and what that represents to us is the, the building and the development of the church again in Jerusalem and how it would spread from there. He then talks about the residue of men and Gentiles and talks about us, those that would come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so James says to them, he says, listen, don't be shocked by this turn of events. God already knew and God had already told us that this was going to happen. The main focus that he has here is that, listen, guys, what is happening is the fulfillment of the law. That's what he's saying. This is the fulfillment of the law found in Christ and it's found in what's happening with the Gentiles. And so now we have Peter, we have James, we have Paul, we have Barnabas, all of them in agreement. And their agreement is all obstacles to grace must be removed. And he says here that the Gentiles must be welcome to trust in Christ alone and join the community of faith. Now, if you thought when Peter ended his, that was a mic drop moment. To me, I feel like this was a mic drop moment right here after James gets up. And James says to them, he just says, listen, this is what it is. And here's what I love is that what we see is that salvation through grace has been thoroughly defended. <laughs> it has been defended now to these uh, to, these gent or to these Jewish believers, just as we should defend it today as Christians. We need to defend salvation through grace and through grace alone. But grace is not just something that must be talked about and defended. Grace is also something that should be lived out. And so secondly, in our passage, I want you to see that grace is now demonstrated. Grace should be defended, but now we're going to see how grace is demonstrated. They're all in agreement, and now James continues and gives some instruction for the way forward. You know, it's not enough sometimes to just know, okay, all right, that's the truth. Sometimes we want to have direction. What's the way forward from here? So James now gives them that instruction. Look at verse uh, number 19. He says, wherefore my sentence is. You say, man, he had that kind of, well, I mean, he was the pastor of the church and people listened to him. God had put him in that, in that place. And he says, hey, this is what we're going to do. Here's what he says. This is my sentence, that we trouble them not. You see that? He says, don't bother them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them, here's what we're going to write unto them, that they abstain from pollution of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. You say, what? We'll talk about it. <laughs> Verse 21. For Moses of old time hath in every city them that preach him, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. 
James had some advice here now for both groups. He says, we've identified it, grace and grace alone, that's salvation. But now he has some advice for the groups. To the Jewish believers, what he says to them is he says, lay off, all right? Back off, man. Just leave the Gentile believers alone. Do not trouble them. And then to the Gentile believers, he gives them three restrictions. He says, I want you to stay away from anything that's connected to or anything that has to do with idols. And then he says, I want you to avoid fornication, that sexual sin that's outside of marriage. He says, you need to avoid that. And then as well, he says, don't partake or be involved in meat that has been strangled uh, or has blood in it. We would look at it as almost like a, a rare uh, type of meat, eating that kind of thing. Now, and then you say, what is he talking about? Well, first of all, he says, there's to be no idolatry, of course, because there's only one true God. And that's very clear in the law, right? Jewish law. Remember, what he's doing is he's bringing the groups together. So he says, okay, you need to stay away, uh, anything that's connected with idols, because that's going to be a real trigger point for the Jews. <laughs> and then he also says, you need to forbid fornication, that was something that was rampant among the Gentiles and was a part of their worship. Their pagan worship involved prostitution and a lot of things like that. And so that's why he says, okay, well, besides that, by the way, that, that still applies, not just in that specific situation. That's part of the law. You need to avoid from that. But again, that would have been something that the Jews would have been concerned about. And then the third restriction of eating uh, uh, meat or things that have been strangled that had not been bled out. Again, some of it was connected to temple and pagan worship. Um, as well as, of course, we know that for the Jews, there were some uh, meat uh, restrictions. There were some food restrictions that they held to for specific times. And so remember, part of the church is coming together and eating together, right? And so he wanted to make sure that, okay, these are some things uh, that we are connected. And then he, he adds to that, because Moses of old time hath in every city, then that preach him. He said, what is he saying? What he's saying is this, in every city that you're going to go to, there's going to be believers, Jewish believers. In every city that you go to, there's going to be more than likely at least a synagogue or at least a few Jewish believers. And guess what they're going to be doing? They're going to be teaching the law. And so when you come and you teach uh, Jesus Christ, the Messiah has come and they become believers, they already know the law. And so you're going to have to make sure that there's some, there's some back and forth here that you're working one with another. Now to us, when we look at this and we're like, wait a minute, the Jews have 613 laws and now you just gave three. <laughs> you just gave three. That seems a little unfair, Right. I'm sure the Jews were like, hey, like, wait a minute, we have a lot. Why did you just give them three? Okay, well, here's what's happening, and this is what I want us to see. James is doing more than just adding more law. You understand that. He's not about just adding more law. He's not saying, oh, if you do these three, three things, then you're truly saved. No, no, no. What James is doing here is that he's teaching us two important aspects of grace that every Christian must understand, and I'm going to share those with you here. Okay, the first one, write this down. The first one is this. Because we are under grace, we are not to make non-biblical requirements of others. This is the big lesson that he's trying to teach us. Because we are under grace, he says, because of grace, you then should not place unbiblical, and that's a focus there, unbiblical requirements or non-biblical requirements of others. So in that day, what it meant was, okay, Jewish believers, do not force your Jewish lifestyle on the Gentiles. Today, it means that we are not to make areas of our lifestyle that are not super clear in Scripture. We should not place those upon other people, and we should not make that the standard for them to be considered a good Christian in my eyes. That's what he's trying to get across. For example, and we've seen this before. You know, let's say someone becomes a Christian or uh, uh, who, 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 who's got, just recently gotten saved, and then there's another Christian who's been saved 25 years. 
And that person who's been saved 25 years, maybe they grew up in church, you know, and they've been saved 25 years. They see that new Christian and they're like, uh, like, how come you're not acting like me, <laughs> right? How come you're not living like me yet? And, and they look at them and they, and, 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 and they, they, they take the way that their life is and they basically put it on somebody else. So this is a person who's been saved for 25 years, and then this is somebody who's been saved 25 minutes, you know, or 25 days. And they're like, hey, how come you're not doing things like me? You must not truly be saved. And that judgment does happen, unfortunately. Uh, it extends to people who don't have the same convictions as you, maybe about certain things, or the, the, same, the same preferences as you. And so we're like, well, because they're not seeing the Word of God the way I see the Word of God, because they're not applying the Word of God the way I apply the Word of God, therefore they must be wrong. That's legalism, folks. That's what the Jews were doing here. They're trying to place it on other people. And what he's saying here to us is that, listen, grace means that you're not to put your non-biblical requirements or, or things even that God reveals to you that maybe doesn't reveal to somebody else. You should not put that on somebody else as a, as a proof that they are saved to you, okay? By the way, this, what I'm going to talk about today can be abused. I just want you to know this, all right? And I'm going to try to cover everything that I can. But we so easily push our preferences on other people, don't we? It extends to things on how uh, people present themselves. It, 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 it goes to how a church is run. Well, my old church did it this way, and you're not doing it this way, and I think you should do it how my old church did it. You know? And so we put that on a new church that you go to. Or you, move, or, you, know, you can't do those kind of things. It comes down to personal tastes, musical preferences. I mean, there's a whole litany of, of areas that this is applied. But the point is this. If we push any of those things as necessary to a life of grace, or if we question somebody's salvation because they are different than us, you are repeating the sin of the Judaizers. It is sin for you to put that on somebody else. And we easily push our preferences. We assume that they will do things our way or they are unspiritual. And that's just a, a sin. It's wrong. It's wrong. Too often we look at others through the lens of our own heritage before we fully accept them as brothers and sisters in Christ. That is not a demonstration of grace. Now you say, well, man, that's great then. I can do whatever I want, right? As long as I don't break, you know, these three things here, I can just, I can do whatever. No, no, no. There, there are certainly elements. Okay, for example, um, if somebody is doing and involved in a life of sin that is very clearly outlined in the Word of God, remember, this is before Galatians, Ephesians, 1 Corinthians, which was written to a sinful church, okay? All of these epistles that Paul wrote that gave us a moralistic approach to life and, and things that we should stay away from and the way that we should present ourselves as believers, it even talks about things like uh, the way we dress and, and all of that, the way we present ourselves. Okay, all that hasn't been written yet, just so you know. It's coming. And so for us today who are believers, we are accountable to the word of God for those things as well. So some people say, well, as long as I'm not sleeping around, you know, and as long as I'm not worshiping idols, I'm good to go. Uh, there is more to the Christian life than that. And so if somebody is living in clear sin for extended amounts of time, there is certainly a biblical principle to wonder. I wonder if they're truly converted because the converted heart will abstain sin, will want to resist it, will have a repentant heart towards sin. Okay, so there's that element of it as well. But there are some preferences, things that we uh, interpret in Scripture or maybe apply to us in different ways 
that we don't necessarily have to push on other people. You know, there are some things in my life because of my upbringing, and, and I'm thankful I was raised in a Christian home, and so there's some things that for me are very important to me from the Word of God. They are biblical principles that I've applied to help me as well, based off of my own experience in my past, based off of sins of my past. I have put up for myself some barriers and some guidelines around me that I would call a preference, that I would call, a, a, I would call it a personal conviction. You know, I feel like this applies to me and it's here to help me, but it's not something that I would maybe put on you and say, okay, you have to do this as well. Does that make sense? If I, have a, if I have a specific thing that helps me walk with the Lord and helps my conscience and helps me, but if you don't have that same conviction, I can't just put that on you. Unless it's very, very clearly outlined in the Word of God, I have to realize that the Holy Spirit speaks to us differently in different things. So I can't just put that on. But the convictions that you have must come from God. You realize that. They must come from the Holy Spirit. They can't be things that you've just been told, oh, this is what you got to do. You have to trust the word of God. And sometimes the Lord leaves different Christians to different levels of standards, if you want to call it that, different uh, uh, preferences in their life. And just because God does that does not mean that they are wrong. Someone does not have to be just like me to prove that they are saved. How insecure is that, (laughs) right? How insecure. And it's a terrible Christian life if you walk around judging everybody else's things based off of what you're doing. That's a horrible Christian life. You know, we talk about the abundant Christian life. That's the opposite of that. Walking around judging other people and decisions that they make and things that they do or judging even a church that, that that you have no understanding of and just judging it because they're not the same as you, okay? And I would say this on the flip side of it. As Christians, you cannot live your life in fear of other people's judgment, You can't live your life in fear of somebody else's opinion to you. Instead of trying to live up to everybody else's opinions, you need to live up to God's potential in you and what God God can do through you. And guess what happens? Here's what's amazing. And new Christians often struggle with this. Here's what's amazing is that as, as you grow in your walk with God, God does reveal to you sometimes the same things. (laughs) What do you know, (laughs) right? I, I mean, I, I know uh, my dad and I, we've had many conversations like this about different things. And my dad has said to me in, in the past, and, and I've been in ministry now, man, oh man, a long time, almost 15 years. And there were times early on in ministry, he would say to me, you know what? He said, I believe that God will give you that same conviction that I have about that particular subject. We'd be discussing, I'd be like, ah, it's not. He's like, I believe that, guess what? 15 years, God has revealed to me, and I now have the same convictions in some of those areas. Some things I don't, but some things I do. And that's the thing, as you mature, God shows you things, and we have to give other people room to grow. Now, now if you've been a Christian for 15 years and you're living like you just got saved two weeks ago, uh, there needs to be some growth. (laughs) I think there needs to be some growth that needs to happen here. But James says, he says, because we're under grace here, don't make non-biblical requirements of other people. And that's what he's speaking specifically to the Jews. And while he's bringing the heat to the Jews, I guarantee you those Gentiles are over there like, yeah, give it to them, (laughs) all right? Tell them. And I'm sure in the same breath, James turned to those Gentiles and said, hey, stop smirking, you know, wipe the smirk off your face. And here's the second principle he gives to them. Because we are under grace, number two, because we are under grace, we gladly restrict our freedom for the sake of others. Now, everyone loves, yeah, those Pharisees, all that law, everybody loves that part, right? Don't push your, don't push your beliefs on me, right? Don't push your standards on me. Don't push it on me. No, no. But he also reveals that grace 
If you're living under grace, you will gladly restrict your freedoms for the sake of others. You know, there was nothing intrinsically wrong with eating a rare steak, a blue rare steak. Just, all right, give it to me. (laughs) I can't eat it that way. (laughs) There's nothing intrinsically wrong, but that's that's what they would maybe do. But in order to preserve the relationship, remember, that's what this is about. In order to preserve the relationship and nurture the unity of the church, then just boil the meat. (laughs) Cook the meat. (laughs) Do something with it in order to, you know, don't whip out a big old bloody steak at your, you know, at your Jewish friend's house and like, I'm going to eat this today. Like, (laughs) you know, (laughs) just, do you understand what I'm trying to say? Do you understand what he's trying to say? Our, Our liberty should not be used for the flesh. And we, we understand that. The danger from a, a full understanding of, of freedom in Christ that we have, the danger that creeps into our hearts as fleshly man is that we sometimes then have a flippant attitude towards somebody else who may have a different opinion than me. It goes both ways. To those Gentiles, they needed to remember that salvation was of the Jews. They needed to remember that uh, uh, the law was important in that those that had grown up in that and wanted to keep the law and, and still trust in Christ, that they needed to be okay with that. And in the same way, when we are under grace, we need to be careful in guarding our testimony, not to be doing things that we would be offensive to other believers. Romans 6.1 says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, this is specifically speaking about people who live in sin and say, well, the more that I sin, the more that God's grace is revealed, <laughs> which, is, which is, is, not, is not what you're supposed to be doing. But there are people doing that. Like they would go and, just, and they would just sin and like, oh, look at the grace of God and forgiving me of my sin. So I'm going to sin again. And they would do it to like magnify the grace. Listen, that doesn't magnify the grace of God, nor does it give you a good testimony in your community uh, to, or to those that know Jesus Christ. But the commands that were given to these Gentiles was to help them show to the Jewish believers that they had left their sinful past behind. It's a, it's a signal to those Jewish believers that if they're going to abstain from things that have been around idols, they're going to stay away from the sexual sins of their past. They're going to, uh, they're going to make, uh, even if it's a small step of, of when they go to a Jewish person's house or they gather together for a church meal, not to be like, hey, where's the steaks? You know, like, I want a raw steak or bring something that they had bought at the temple that had, that had been, you know, offered to an idol. Uh, the, the point is, is that they're making an effort. They're showing that, hey, listen, I have left that behind. That was the concern of the Jews. The concern was that they're just going to walk in with all their pagan beliefs and be like, I take on Christ and, you know, I'm just going to keep on doing whatever. The Jews needed that. They needed that signal. So he says, you need to show them that. You need to show them that you're leaving that lifestyle behind. That's why as Christians today, we often ask the question, if anyone who did not know you was to observe your life, would they know that you're a Christian? Because there is to be a difference, right? There's to be a, a difference in the way that we are. They were showing them. And and to me, that's such an example to us as a church. We have to remember that God's desire is that we consider one another before ourselves. And when we go to make decisions uh, about what we do, when we make decisions about where we go, when we make decisions about what we post, when we make decisions about how we speak, when we make decisions about about the things that we're going to go, we need to ask ourselves the question, does this bring unity to my church family? Or would this be an offense to somebody? That's what it means to prefer someone else above yourself is to literally ask that question. Would this be offensive to somebody? And I'm not just talking about me. You know, everything's like, oh, well, I don't know. Pastor probably wouldn't approve of this. That's not what I'm talking about. You know, there's more people. I'm a member of a church. (laughs) I'm one member of this church body. 
Listen, you should be more concerned about other people as well. You realize that? And asking yourself the question, would this action that I am taking right now, would this video that I'm posting for the world to see, right? Would this, uh, would this place that I am going to and this thing that I'm participating in, would it cause a brother and sister in Christ to be concerned about me? Would it cause a brother and sister in Christ to be concerned about my walk with the Lord? Let me ask you this, and this is very important. Would it, would it cause a new Christian to stumble in their growth with the Lord? If you remember what it was like when you first got saved, immediately there was a bunch of things you're like, I got to stop doing these things, <laughs> right? Almost immediately. And God starts to show you, and you're like, oh, oh, oh. And maybe, maybe as you're reading or as you're, you're hearing, you're like, oh, I, I'm not. I remember I was discipling a new believer one time, and uh, we were having discipleship, and we're going through our Bible course, and we're talking, and he just like, I, I, I think I talked about the Holy Spirit. I was like, and that's the work of the Holy Spirit. And he's like, oh, bleep. <laughs> he like just, yeah, he just dropped it. Right in our discipleship session at the church, we're sitting there together, and he just curses. You know, he's like, man, that's pretty awesome. Like, and I was like, hey, man, yeah, cool. Like, uh, <laughs> and I was like, hey, you know, like, uh, as a Christian, sometimes there's things that we, we try to distinguish ourselves from the world, and one of the ways is we don't curse, not just in church, <laughs> but in life. There's something different about us. You know, he's like, oh, man, he's like, I didn't know. Like, he really, he was like, whoa. He's like, yeah, I never even thought of it. He's like, that makes total sense, you know? And, uh, and, and God gave him victory in that, you know? And this is somebody, I mean, who was potty mouth. I don't know how else to say it. Uh, and, and God gave him victory in that. He didn't know. And so as he learned it, though, uh, he's like, oh, okay. But you got to think about it. A lot of new Christians, a lot of new believers, there's elements of their life that they have left behind or they're trying to leave behind. Whether it's a life of addiction, uh, alcoholism. Uh, for some, many Christians try to leave behind some of the music of the world, you know, that, is, that, that speaks negatively to their spirit, or just by them being involved in it, it represents an approval of a certain type of artist. And so, and so there's like, you know what, I'm going to try to move away. And you say, oh, that's legalism, Pastor Paul. That's not legalism. I can show you in the Word of God ways that we are to be distinct as Christians, okay? Okay? That's not legalism. I'm not adding to your salvation. I'm saying you have to do that to be saved. You can be saved and, and do this, but you know what I'm saying, right? Biblical, okay, you're with me. So then there's, a, let's say there's a new Christian and, they're, and they've been struggling with the pull of their old life. And they've been struggling with the pull of, uh, of, of improper thoughts and the people that they used to hang out with and all of this. And then they see a believer in the church do something that is pretty much that or leads to that. You could cause them to stumble in their walk with the Lord. And, and listen, there, there's very few, and I would say this, there's not, it's not like there's a ton of things like that. You realize that, right? But the point is, is that we need to be aware of those kind of things when we make decisions. We need to be aware of the fact that uh, somebody else could struggle. Now, you might be here and you might be watching and be like, I don't care. They need to get over it, right? I got freedom in Christ. <laughs> I can do whatever I want. Like, you just need to get over it. Uh, listen, is that extending grace to them? Is that extending grace? Is that showing them undeserved favor? Say, I don't deserve to have to be bound by that rule or, you know what, if they struggle with that, I'm just going to do what I want. It doesn't matter. Is that really extending grace? Get this, get this quote right here. Get this thought. We must extend the same, same grace to others as we expect them to give to us. So if you're the kind of Christian, you're like, I'm free to do whatever I want in Christ. You can't, you know, I'm just going to do whatever I want. Listen, you need to be willing to give the same grace to that person who has a different approach to it than you do. 
Does that make sense? You're like, oh, this is, this is, getting, this is getting hard. It is getting hard. Because the Christian life is about other people. It's about other people. And we have to think, we have to be aware. Our liberty, our grace, our freedom in Christ is not so we can just be like, do whatever you want. I'm going to do whatever I want. No, there's, there's elements here that are so important. And James says, this is what we're going to do about this situation. He says, salvation is by grace, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But we have to extend that same grace to others. The grace that we defend is the grace that needs to be demonstrated to other people as well. So I'm not going to put all of my uh, different things. If I have a different opinion about child rearing or whatever, I'm not going to put that on you. You need to come to that conviction yourself. But at the same time, we also need to be aware that we're not using our liberty as an occasion to the flesh. We're not using our liberty. We need to be considering one another. So we abstain from some things even. You say, well, that's not fair. That's not fair. That's what the Bible says to us. And I'll tell you what, a life that is lived for others, that lives in, in, in concern of others, you will have an impeccable testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be able to influence those people that you desperately want to be saved. God will use you in a special way. And we've got to be willing to think of other people, demonstrate the grace. All right, lastly, grace is declared. You say, whoa, we're going a long time. Yeah, I'm almost done. I promise you. This, this, this one's going to be quick. Here we go. Grace is declared. So verse 22 through 29, I'm not even going to read it. It says, uh, it says that the saying pleased the Jerusalem council. They're all like, great, James, that's great. So they chose Paul, Barnabas, Judas, Bar, uh, Judas Barsabbas with his last name, and Silas. And uh, they told them to take the news to the Gentiles in Antioch. Look at verse number 30 of Acts 15. So when they were dismissed, they came to Antioch. And when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the epistle. So that's the letter that was written from James. And look at this. And when they had read, they rejoiced for the consolation. <laughs> When the letter was read to the church, they rejoiced. They rejoiced. Why are they rejoicing? Because they did not have to add the 613 laws to their life in order for them to truly be saved. Uh, they, they rejoiced because they recognized that it is salvation through grace alone. And I believe they rejoiced because the unity immediately was felt, you know? Immediately they're like, oh, the church in Jerusalem and the church in Antioch, our hearts are knit together through the grace of God. It's not about they do the law and you don't do the law, so you're not, maybe not saved. And they're saying, well, you hold the law, so you think that the law is keeping you saved. We are unified in Christ around grace and around grace alone, and it brought great joy to the church. They realize and, and remember that they were one in Jesus Christ. Paul said later on in Galatians 3:28, for ye are all one in Christ. You're all one in Christ. I love that. They rejoice together over what took place. A, a situation that could have been a split now resulted in great unity. Great unity. So you say, what's the application, Pastor Paul? Here's the application. We must zealously guard the doctrine of salvation as a church. We must. That's not just from the pulpit. That's not just me. That's us as a group, a group, as a church family. We need to guard salvation through grace and grace alone. The, uh, a second lesson that I see in this is that we should be willing to deal with issues open and honestly. If there's discussions, things that need to be talked about, we need to deal with them openly. We need to discuss them. We need to make things right. And then thirdly, we need to learn to submit to God and defer to one another. Submit to God and defer to one another. Listen, God's grace is worth defending and unity in the church is worth defending as well. And that's what we see in this lesson. Here that they defended the grace of God, but not only were they defending the grace of God, they were defending the unity of the church family as well. We hope that today's message was a help and encouragement to you in your walk with God. To stay connected with us, give us a like on Facebook or follow us on Instagram at Van City Baptist. 
Our prayer is that God will grow and bless you as you pursue His will for your life.